We don't have to look back too, too far to remember some of the worst storms in B.C. history. And with those storms came power outages. So you might think we would learn from that and people would have their emergency kits and going into another winter, we would be ready for whatever whatever Mother Nature throws our way. Not so, says B.C. Hydro. A new survey done by Hydro shows that we're actually not better prepared for storms. So why is that or what should we be doing? Uh, let's bring in Tanya Fish, who is a spokesperson with BC Hydro. Tanya, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, were you surprised at all that uh, this look, this uh, survey by Hydro looking at whether or not to British Columbians are prepared showed that we're really not? Certainly, yeah, we were surprised. So every, every year around this time, we go out with a message um, encouraging British Columbians to get prepared for winter storm season and possible power outages. So in this survey we conducted, we found that over 60% of British Columbians said they don't feel they are prepared for a winter storm season, and over 50% do not have an emergency preparedness kit. So certainly a concern with us. We have seen the increase in the frequency and severity of winter storms in the past few years. You may recall the December 2018 storm last year. That was the largest storm in our history. We, it required the biggest mobilization of crews and resources ever before. We had over 750,000 customers lose power. So certainly we are seeing more damage to our system as a result of these storms and the longer duration power outages uh, for our customers. And in this study, did you look throughout the province and break it down by region or was it mainly focused on Metro Vancouver? We did a whole provincial outlook. Uh, the survey was province-wide. We did find that customers uh, in more remote areas, so in the north, uh, places on Vancouver Island, they did feel that they were more prepared. So that was good news for us. Uh, typically, customers in these areas do experience longer outages, just given the, the challenges of getting crews to certain areas in those remote, remote places. Typically, we see more damage in these places, just given the terrain. Um, so that, that is good news for us, that these customers do feel that they're more prepared. We also found that the majority of those on Vancouver Island and the Gulf Islands that were hard hit by the storm last year have taken steps to be more prepared this year. So that is encouraging news for us. We did find that customers in the lower mainland, uh, typically they only think think it's reasonable to be without power for about three to five hours after a major storm event. So we want to encourage customers to be prepared, have that emergency kit ready, and really have those supplies that could last at least 72 hours. Uh, interesting that timeline that people uh, in the more urban areas or Metro Vancouver find, because that that could also be a, a bit of a, a double-edged sword in that the reason people probably think that is because hydro crews have been so great in the past or so efficient in getting to their area and getting the power back on that it kind of gives people that sense of comfort in that, well, don't worry about it. They're all they're on it and they're going to fix it and I don't have to worry about it at all. Yeah, we, I mean, we did, did find we do have a, a really great uh, restoration times for our customers. We are one of the best in North America. Uh, typically, after a, a major storm event, we do have 95% of customers back within 24 hours. But again, it's not just preparing for a power outage either. It's other major events such as an earthquake or a wildfire, those sorts of things. So it's not just about outages. It's really about emergency preparedness overall. And it doesn't matter where in the province you live, you should be prepared for, for any type of natural disaster. Well, no, I thought that too when I first saw these numbers in that we talk about this every time there's a tremor, whether it's off the coast or a small earthquake, or if there's a major earthquake somewhere else in the world, we talk about being prepared here. But every time it seems that happens, we do the story about people not being prepared. So it doesn't seem to matter what kind of disaster it is or what kind of inconvenience, whether it's the power out for a few hours, uh, people people don't do that. Uh, Are there other things people should be doing as far as the prevention side? Because oftentimes when we do have these storms, it's because branches have come down on wires or trees have fallen down. 
Mm-hmm. So on our end, we have taken another, another number of steps in the last year uh, after the major storm event in last December. Um, one of the big things we do every year is we have a quite a comprehensive vegetation management program. So we go out and you know, locate trees that could potentially cause damage to our system after a major storm. Uh, so we remove those trees to, to help improve the reliability of our system. So last year, we actually removed over 52,000 trees uh, that are posing a risk to our system, and that's across the province. Um, for customers, it's really important for them to take steps uh, and make sure when they're planting trees or doing uh, vegetation management on their own properties to be, a, to be aware of the, the power lines that are nearby, not planting trees that are you know, potentially going to grow in, into power lines, again, to ensure the reliability of our distribution system in, in their neighbourhoods. Uh, the survey also looks at safety after pet trees are down and when there are power outages. Uh, there was the one finding, and, and thankfully it's it's a smaller number, but it's still around the 20% of British Columbians that aren't sure how to tell if a downed power line is live. That's got to be a bit concerning. Certainly, yes, that is a concern for us. Again, as we're seeing this more severe damage to our system, we are seeing more damaged power lines and downed power lines. And the big thing to remember is you can never tell if a down line is live or not. Oftentimes, you know, you see things in the movies where things are you know, sparking or smoking or making a, a buzzing sound on a power line. Uh, but in reality, it's actually there's no way to tell. So that's why we always want to encourage customers that any time they come across a down or damaged power line, to assume that, assume that line is live, stay back at least 10 meters and to call 911 to report that. We always want to treat a down line as an emergency situation. And then crews will come on site, make the area safe, and and work on repairs. And what if somebody does find themselves in a situation where the lines are down and and you find yourself in the middle of it, whether you've driven over it or you're suddenly closer to it than than you're supposed to be? Is that the same protocol? Yes, certainly. If you're in a in a vehicle, um, if you're able to drive away from the source of the electricity, we certainly encourage you to do that. Uh, if you are if there's another emergency where you're unable to, to get away from or drive away from the power line, uh, there are some certain te- steps you have to take in order to stay safe. Um, we have a great information on our website on those specific steps, uh, bchydro.com slash be safe on what to, what to do if you're involved in a motor vehicle accident involving equipment. Uh, again, if you're out walking, uh, you see a down power line, stay back at least 10 meters. So that's the length of a city bus um, and to call 911 to report that. We encourage you to remain on scene as well and, and ensure you get that message out to other passerbys as well that there is a damaged power line in the area and to keep them back, back as well just to ensure everyone stays safe. All right. And one other question, uh, taking a look at uh, people, and we're a bit slow uh, learning from these past storms as far as having those emergency kits and being prepared. Has BC Hydro learned different things from that as far as being proactive or responding to these storms as we are seeing uh, them become more intense? Mm-hmm. So certainly. Uh, so every storm experience we have is an opportunity for us to learn. Last year was certainly no exception. That, that the big storm we had, again, involved the biggest mobilization of our crews and resources. Uh, many logistical challenges as well during that storm, just given it took place uh, over the holiday season. So we had to deal with things like restaurants being closed, hotels being being fully booked, bringing in crews from other parts of the country to assist with restoration efforts. Uh, we had ferries that weren't running, so we were unable to get crews from the, the lower mainland over to the island to assist with restoration progress there. So we have made a number of improvements on, on our end. We have worked with our local external agencies and different communities that were hard hit to better understand not only their challenges, 
during that storm event and also explain, you know, what, what we do and how we do it during uh, restoration progress. One other thing we've learned is really to improve the the information that we get from our field crews over to our operations center. We know customers just want to know when their power is going to be back as quickly as possible. So we've introduced new tools for our field workers that will allow them to more efficiently and effectively provide information back to our operations center about their restoration progress. And then we're able to pass that on to our customers in a, a timely manner. All right. Well, hopefully, uh, as we head into the winter season, we won't need to to be putting those plans into place, but good to have them and make sure that we are prepared. Tanya Fish, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Well, some new poll results show the majority of Canadians think that Canada is doing relatively well when it comes to the well-being of children. But the results themselves show a little bit of a different story. And joining me now to talk more about this is Stephanie Mitten, Managing Director of the group Children First Canada. Stephanie, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, When we talk about, before we get into the poll results, when we talk about well-being of children, what exactly are we looking at there? So it's an index that includes a number of different indicators and really measures uh, the health of children. And by health, we're talking um, nutrition, are we talking about access to school, uh, home life, that kind of thing? Yeah, those are the different kinds of indicators that are included in that measure. And what did this poll look at then as far as where Canada stands in the, on the world stage when it comes to the well-being of children? Yeah, so we asked, we started by asking Canadians where they thought Canada ranked, and they reported back that 71% believe Canada ranks in the top 10. But the reality is that we rank 25th overall. So there's a big disparity there. And and where do, do you think that that is? Or is there, were there certain areas where people think Canada does very well, or they thought across the board in certain areas where Canada doesn't? Well, we didn't break it down uh, from that perspective, but I think there's a myth versus the reality situation in Canada in terms of how kids are doing. And we released um, another report in September about the top 10 threats to childhood in Canada. And number one cause of death in Canada for kids is accidents, parental injuries. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for kids in Canada. And we're one of the top five countries for the highest suicide rates in the world. And child abuse, one in third, one in three children will face child abuse before the age of 16. So I think that Canadians don't really know uh, what is happening to a lot of kids in Canada. Uh, th- those numbers are shocking, I think, would, would actually surprise a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, part of our organization's mandate is to really make sure that Canadians do know uh, that kids in Canada aren't all right and to try and work on solutions. And when we then when we asked them about where they thought Canada ranked, we then said, "Okay, well, we're 25th. Do you think we should be investing more in in Canadian children or not? And the response, of course, was uh, nine out of 10 said, of course, uh, we, we need to see that. So more and more Canadians need to know about the reality so that we can mobilize around change. Uh, one of the things that, that often is talked about or seems to be reported on more than others is childhood poverty. And I know in British Columbia, there's been talk in the past that the childhood poverty numbers or the number of kids that are going to school without breakfast and hungry mm. is way higher than it should be. Is that something that was touched on in this report or do you think is a factor in, in people, their responses in this poll? 
Well, of course, uh, hunger is one of those top 10 threats that we looked at in September. And it's interesting you say that because when I look at the BC numbers, uh, compared to Canada overall, they seem to have a better understanding of where we are. So if when we um, asked about Canada comparing to other countries, uh, 36% of Canadians overall would say uh, we're in the top five, where BC respondents said 21%. And we see that kind of across the board. Um, should we be investing more? BC's numbers are higher. Um, do kids get the support they need to achieve their full potential? BC's numbers saying that they agree is lower. So I, I, that's very interesting. I'm not sure if they just um, have a better perception on reality or it's the, the regional aspects, but uh, I think those numbers tell a bit of a story there. Uh, what num- what countries then are doing really well or at the top of the list when it comes to the well-being of kids? So often the countries that are at the top tend to be more Nordic countries, which is not necessarily surprising because they had a, have a lot of uh, strong um, social programs and stuff uh, in place. Um, some of the countries that do really well have something called a, like a national children's commissioner. Um, we see these at a lot of, in a lot of the provinces across the country, uh, minus Ontario, and that's something that we advocate federally. Um, we can see countries that have implemented um, somebody that has a federal role that really focuses on children actually makes a difference in their rankings. Right, because in we do have, or at least in BC, we do have the, the child and youth advocate. Is it something in a mm-hmm. role like that, you mean? Yes, yeah. So a federal version of that where uh, there would be a nonpartisan person, somebody who could help feed into federal legislation and policy issues. But also there are a lot of children's issues related to Indigenous children and also refugee children and some other issues uh, that that are federal jurisdiction that relate to kids in Canada. Did it look at childcare as well, or is there a correlation that you saw between countries that have, say, national childcare or have uh, more effective childcare programs than others? Uh, no, the poll didn't uh, didn't break it down that way. Um, one thing I can tell you, though, that might be a little bit interesting is when we ask people what are the five biggest priorities. Um, when we look at nationally and we look at at, at BC, they're pretty similar, except for. Um, in BC, in the top five was mental health, drugs and alcohol, poverty, health and bullying. And drugs was not in the top five uh, for the nation. And then schools and education was lower in BC. So that's also interesting. Yeah, it is different. And so you did see quite uh, different answers across the, the country from the different provinces. Yeah, and some of them, I would say, so far from some of the different interviews I've done, when I look down at the regional breakdown, um, BC seems to be quite a bit different than some some of the other people I've spoken to when I look at those numbers. Um, So that's interesting, especially with uh, all the types of national narratives we have going on in the country right now. Uh, What other areas does BC stand out in, or where is it different? Uh, Yeah, so uh, if we're looking at the top five, um, drugs and alcohol is rated higher, and then schools and education is uh, rated lower. Otherwise, um, it's pretty similar in, in kind of the, the top groupings of numbers there. Uh, interesting, uh, the findings, and I think you mentioned this, so of the findings in this poll, 92% of people polled said they believe that investing in children now saves additional spending in the future, which makes sense. Yeah. Probably not surprising that 92 would say that, but then the other numbers show that maybe we're not doing a great job of actually implementing that. 
Yes. Well, and I think the reality is, too, is Canadians can think that's a good idea, but do we actually see that in terms of investments and policy change, right? And I think there's a disconnect there um, in terms of, you know, putting the political will and, and the action behind actually making change. And the other thing that we see in Canada, because we are a federation, is that uh, the issues related to children and the funding are in many different pockets. And that's why we think there needs to be better federal leadership because uh, we need to see a better comprehensive plan because it's really quite patchwork when you look across the country about the different supports for children in Canada. Right, because on the top five too, when you're looking at those, and health and fitness comes in there, but what health mm-hmm. and fitness initiatives might be in one province might not be there in another. Exactly. And then for some of the federal jurisdiction pieces, they could be missing completely. So uh, so there's a lot of work to be done. I mean, the three things that we've called on the federal government to do is a national commissioner, a pan-Canadian strategy. So again, getting at those uh, issues of it being different all over the country and there being gaps. And then uh, the third is a children's budget. So is there enough money? Where is the money going? Are there efficiencies even to be found in terms of overlap? But really getting a better understanding of where is this money going and is it going to the right places? Because it's not as though we're only talking about children who are living in poverty. It sounds like we're talking as well about children living in all areas of, of the economic spectrum in that parents, whether it's a child tax credit or it's a way to get children involved in sport or it's a way to make sure sure that if somebody's being bullied, that that's being addressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and as, which sounds, sounds like those are not obvious. Well, kind of, it sounds like they're obvious things, but at, at the same time, finding a way to address them right across the country uh, is a pretty big task. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, are you, are you confident at all or, or hopeful, I guess, that the numbers, that these types of numbers will lead to more of an, of a, an approach, a federal approach when dealing with children? Well, I certainly think that uh, the more we can educate Canadians about where we're at, uh, the more that their voices are heard as well. And it also certainly helps us when we talk to federal leaders and say, the reality is Canadians don't know where we're at and this is where where we're at. And it's not good enough. Um, Children are a quarter of our population, 100% of our future. So we can have all these great programs, uh, but if we don't have a healthy um, group of children to move into those roles, uh, the the programs and the future of the country is just not sustainable. All right. Well, we will leave it there. Some interesting numbers coming out of that poll. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Have a great day. And until such time as the parties have an understanding of how close they can get, mediation uh, may not be the, the right answer. I'm, I want the parties back at the table. Uh, I understand the importance of transit to the traveling public. The, the employer does, uh, the workers do. I think everybody wants a resolution and they've got the opportunity over the weekend to get that done. All right, that is BC Premier John Horgan. He was speaking a couple of days ago saying the best place to fix the ongoing transit dispute in Metro Vancouver is at the bargaining table. That was in response to a question about when and if the government would get involved in perhaps legislating workers back to work. Well, let's bring in Thomas Knight, Associate Professor specializing in Industrial Relations and Human Resources at the University of British Columbia. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. You're very welcome. That's just one of the labor disputes we're dealing with right now. Why is it you think we're having so much uh, labor issue, so many issues in BC right now? Well, it's partly a function of how many uh, negotiations are actually underway simultaneously. They're independent 
Um, and uh, it, it's just that a lot of them were, were coming due at the same time. I think there's also an element of, um, you know, feeling strong, testing out the government perhaps, uh, an expectation that uh, an NDP government will be more favorable. But, of course, <laughs> an NDP government, as Horgan himself has said, has to look after the finances as much as any other government. And it seems like in some cases there's more of a push for that. And while we've seen some public sector unions settle or, or sign on for the, the two, two and two, there are other ones with teachers being the best example, expecting yeah. to get more. Yeah, I, I mean, the the uh, a very large proportion of the public sector has uh, settled under the current government mandate, which is uh, three years at two percent. There is allowance for uh, a, a, a additional adjustment where it can be demonstrated that there are labor market uh, issues, and this is a lot of what the uh, uh, the teachers are hanging or will be hanging their uh, case on. Uh, is there also, though, that clause, and I find it a bit weird they're calling it the Me Too clause because that means something so yes. tor- so uh, incredibly different, but is there also this clause where if another union gets a deal where a union that is already settled yes. doesn't like that, they can then go back and say, wait a minute, let's reopen our negotiation because we want more as well? Well, yes. I mean, it, it, it's called Me Too because uh, it's sort of an insurance policy. If we buy into your mandate at 2 2 and 2 and and another union uh, later in the bargaining cycle uh, somehow manages to get more um, in the name of equity and fairness, uh, and because we did sign on and agree to the mandate, um, we would expect the same additional adjustment. Now, in the case of transit uh, bus drivers and transit workers, maintenance workers, and those that are involved in the current dispute, the offer on the table, as we know, is much better or much more than the 2-2-2. But from what I understand, there's a clause in there, like you said, or it has to do with the labor market issues, and that's how they're able to do that. Well, I don't know the the actual facts on that. I, I, I don't think it's much more. It's not like it's twice or something like that. Um, but there, but the the uh, uh, offer that's on the table uh, uh, apparently is um, a, a measure beyond the, the the mandate, and I think that may be partly um, Coast Mountain Bus being um, off to the side. It's not a direct uh, uh, government agency. Right. There's not actually the public uh, sector union. Yes. It's a different a different uh, monster, if you look at it that way, yeah. a different branch. Okay. Um, the, the premier has said that a four-month strike, uh, similar to the one that we saw in 2001, would not happen on his watch. Yes. So what do you take from that? Well, I think he's, he's uh, telegraphing or saying directly that that uh, though there is a commitment to free collective bargaining, which includes the right to strike, uh, that's not infinite, and and that there are limits, and uh, we're we're prepared to give the collective bargaining process a chance. Uh, we would prefer that the parties be able to settle something out themselves. Um, but it, but it would not be allowed to stalemate, uh, you know, indefinitely. So setting some boundaries, we don't know exactly where they are, 
uh, I think this is. It feels a bit right now uh, like the lull before the storm. I don't. I don't expect a settlement before Wednesday. Um, I, I think we will have that three-day uh, shutdown, uh, and it may, in fact, be necessary for the bargaining process. Um, but uh, it, you know, I don't. I also still don't expect the government to step in directly. Uh, abruptly. No, and I, and I think that's probably how others are looking at it as well. Yeah. Although things could change drastically if we have this three-day shutdown. Th- if that happens to escalate, we get yes. into uh, December. Let's say there's a shutdown of the transit system on a day that it snows. I think at that point, you're going to see public support or public opinion change a yes. little bit and people looking to the government saying, please do something. There's there's already a fair uh, segment of the public that, that thinks the government should be stepping uh, in or should have stepped in long ago, or this shouldn't be happening at all, or whatever they may think. Um, but yes, I, I I agree with you that that w- once we move into a complete shutdown, uh, <clears throat> that that increases the pressure that will be levied on to the government um, because I mean the the circumstances are so different than 2001. I mean a much heavier ridership, much more reliance. Uh, on transit in in many different ways, so I think that the the pressure will be uh, quicker to be levied on the government, and 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 then it'll have to think about uh, you know what what measures to take. I I would not expect this government to legislate them uh, back to work in in the same uh, sort of heavy-handed way that that in the previous dispute was was used. What else, what would you expect then? What other tool could they use if they have to do something and intervene? Well, uh, it, it's uh, within the labor relations code for the minister to take a variety of actions. They could be, uh, you know, required to go back into mediation. There could be appointment of, of a special mediator, which involves uh, more directive powers than than uh, simple mediation involves. Uh, there there could potentially be a, uh, eventually an order to submit the remaining issues to binding arbitration. Uh, a variety of things, rather than just you know passing legislation that dictates the terms of of what they're going to be working under. And do you think it puts more pressure on members, the bus drivers and maintenance workers who are who are planning the shutdown? Does it put more pressure on those groups to get back to the table? The fact that SkyTrain workers and Rapid Transit Company, they are have agreed that they are going to go back, even though they, too, have an overwhelming uh, strike mandate. They, too, are going back to the table. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know that they would experience it as as pressure. They don't need, I'm sure, don't feel any need to fall into line with with anybody at this point. They're, I mean, one thing to understand about this dispute is is that there's there's a fair amount of of anger on the part of the uh, transit operators. I mean, given 
what they've been experiencing with you know not only this increase in in the ridership load but uh in uh, apparently i don't know the facts on this but increases in episodes of of violence directed at them uh just unpleasantness it's uh it's it's tough on drivers to to be in over overcrowded buses as, as much as it is on uh uh riders uh, there's also on the issue, which is, and, and the crunch issue is uh, pay at this point. I mean, they've had other uh, working condition issues. It appears that they've, they've uh, resolved or found solutions to many, if not all of those. Um, but the, there's this uh, issue of, of pay, and, and the union is adamant that they should be paid what transit workers in Toronto are paid, and and that's standard in collective bargaining to compare ourselves to other similar units. Um, but there's 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 more energy behind it. I, I it, it's speculative on my part. I'm not. I don't have inside knowledge. But uh, there's also been resentment at what is perceived as as uh, large increases compensation increases at the executive level and uh i get the feeling that that well toronto is the standard for uh, executive compensation we have to compete at that level and um i think that the uh union is looking at that and saying well okay then that should be the standard for us and um, because there's a lot of um, emotional pressure behind that, um, that's that's a little tougher to to mediate um, in a as I said in a in a simple sense. So it may have to play itself out a bit. All right. Well, we are uh, keeping tabs on it closely for sure. Thomas Knight, thank you so much for your time today. Sure thing. As I mentioned just before the break, in talking to people on the street, there still seems to be a fair amount of support for bus drivers, for maintenance workers, for those that are partaking in job action. But there is some concern that with the full shutdown of the bus system and C-bus system on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday this coming week, and it does look as though that's going to happen unless there is some huge change before then. With that shutdown, there are going to be people with disabilities who are unable to get to medical appointments, in some cases unable to leave their homes. They won't have care workers coming to them. There are people who don't know how they're going to get to work. It's possible, quite possible, that some of that support might shift or at least shift to government, to the agency that can do something to do something to get a resolution in this dispute. Well, what about small businesses and people who rely on transit to get to work, people who rely on transit to get to the small businesses. Joining me now is Anita Huberman, who is the CEO at the Surrey Board of Trade. Anita, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. What's your main concern with the three-day shutdown planned for next week? Well, we're hearing from our membership that, uh, number one, transit ridership has increased. The reliability to get to work uh, for transit uh, has increased as well. So people are worried about uh, especially employers, about productivity, about uh, service, about uh, really, uh, you know, bottom line delivery of product and service. Uh, small businesses have uh, limited resources as it is, 
And uh, I know that they're going to be understanding uh, during this job action, but it will be a challenge for our small and medium-sized businesses. And even the cost of trying to deal, because I know a lot of businesses right now are putting out email and reaching out to staff saying, this is look, looks like this is going to happen next week. We're trying to find ways to get you to work, whether that's organizing carpools for staff, uh, giving staff taxi chits to get there if they can. That's got to come at a cost. Some of those options has to come at a cost to business as well. Absolutely. And I know employers are also looking at, depending on the nature of the business, the nature of the industry, alternative work schedules, flex time, uh, staggered shifts, um, ways of working from home. But not all businesses are having the ability for their employees to work from home. And uh, it will cost business uh, and uh, and their bottom line. Uh, but uh, we're hoping that this job action will not continue for much longer. We know that uh, absolutely it's uh, going to ha- something is going to happen for three days next week. But uh, hopefully after that, there will be some type of a resolution. Uh, do you think there should be some level of essential service designation for transit? I I don't know if that is possible uh, during these negotiations uh, because that, uh, again, requires uh, a labor force that could be involved in this in these negotiations. So uh, it's uncertain as to what's possible. I mean, those that uh, are persons with uh, physical uh, disabilities, uh, those that are seniors uh, that need to get grocery, for example, uh, you know, there are other mechanisms uh, to get what you need at home. Um, But uh, it is going to be a a challenge uh, for, for everyone. And is it more so in in a city like Surrey, where it's bigger, things are, are more spread out, and there already are transit issues as far or issues as far as people getting around and being overly reliant on on say transit or other ways to get from point A to point B? Well, Surrey is a city in itself. So you can fit Vancouver, Richmond, Burnaby into our city limits. And uh, we have been starved of transit uh, and transportation options. We at the Surrey Board of Trade have been calling for ride sharing, for example, uh, as an alternative mechanism uh, to get around uh, within our city, within our region. So we are limited in terms of our ability to get around. We are a car culture. We continue to be a car culture, waiting for that SkyTrain, waiting for ride sharing, and, uh, and waiting for additional bus and transit options. Uh, do you think this is another call for another example of just how important or how necessary uh, residents of Surrey are look at ride sharing? Well, residents and businesses uh, want ride-sharing in Surrey. I don't know why there's this appetite to stall ride-sharing, whether it's from uh, an administrative uh, uh, perspective or political perspective. I mean, uh, it's all over the world. Uh, Let's just make it happen. Uh, You know, we need transit uh, options, and uh, a SkyTrain bus is one of those uh, examples. Uh, ride sharing is one of those examples. Taxi is one of those examples. We need everything. It's a full comprehensive transportation system uh, that we need, especially in Surrey and south of the Fraser, but really throughout Metro.
Right. Uh, wouldn't it, though, when we talk about Surrey, and you mentioned Surrey being transit-starved and waiting for these expansions and that, uh, wouldn't that kind of suggest, though, that with a transit strike, Surrey would be less impacted in that Surrey doesn't have the transit anyway? Well, more and more, uh, the stats are indicating that uh, transit users uh, are on the rise in Surrey. As you uh, know, that uh, 800 to 1,000 people a month move into our city, and uh, and many of them are a young population. They don't uh, have a car. They rely on transit to get to work, wherever it may be. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, you know, we are starved of transit investments. Yes, we're a, a car culture to get around, but to get to and from work, uh, to get to and from services, uh, we, we do rely on transit. Uh, it, it's a high priority for us. And with the three days shutdown, and I know the the Restaurant and Food Services Association is saying that some of the smaller, the fast food restaurants or the smaller restaurants that rely on staff, they need staff to be in there to, to make them operate. Are you hearing from them as well that there's even the possibility some might have to cut hours or not operate at all? Well, about uh, 5% of our members are are in that sector. Um, I haven't heard from them specifically, but we know uh, from our recent uh, labor force uh, study and workforce strategy report uh, that we released that uh, the hospitality sector is facing already significant skill shortages to deliver services. Uh, To find labor is always and continues to be a challenge. Uh, Ways for people to get to work uh, through this job action is going to impact their bottom line. So uh, it is a concern, uh, I expect, uh, but I haven't heard from them specifically. Uh, So what do you do at this point as far as it doesn't look like anything is going to stop this from happening? I guess it is possible. But with this uh, seemingly going ahead on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, the Board of Trade, what do you guys do? Well, as it relates to uh, our membership, we'll be sending out a a circular, a media release on Monday indicating some guidance on what employers can do. Uh, Of course, we have a very diverse industry base in Surrey. Uh, We're going to be uh, encouraging uh, both sides uh, to come to a conclusion in this job action. I know the province uh, at this time doesn't want to get involved, so I don't know uh, right now if that type of advocacy uh, makes sense at this point, but uh, the concern is to business, to em- employers, uh, to our workforce, and ultimately our economy. All right. Uh, we will be watching uh, to see what happens next. Uh, Anita Hubberman, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you.